Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Dr. Vanessa Neumann has won an international reputation for investigating the movements of terrorists and drug dealers from Colombia to Southeast Asia. She's a consultant for the State Department, the Pentagon, United Nations, and has worked for Interpol, the international police organization, as well as numerous private Fortune 500 companies. She is a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute Center for the Study of Terrorism and president and CEO of Asymmetrica, a New York-based firm that specializes in gaining intelligence about the world's illicit trade, organized crime, terrorism. How does a person with a doctorate in philosophy get involved in all these kind of dangerous activities? <laughs> I don't know. Good question. I mean, my doctorate is actually moral political philosophy. and My dissertation was on the ethics of foreign intervention, like when we should intervene in another state's affairs and how. When autonomy breaks down or uh, when they can't rule themselves or when legitimacy, when the government no longer speaks for the people. So I guess I always had a concern about sort of right and wrong and the relationship between government and individual. That was sort of always the underpinning of my interest. And I got involved in this uh, primarily I always say it's a little bit out of anger, really, that I saw a lot of changes. I was born in Venezuela, and I saw some of the changes under Chavismo that, um, although Chavez... Hugo Chavez, yeah. Yeah, Hugo Chavez, exactly. So Hugo Chavez was elected, you know, supposedly to redress inequality and bring greater social justice and all of that. But I saw Venezuela sinking deeper into a bigger role with narco-terrorism, aligning with a lot of groups that were very anti-American, and getting more involved in uh, drug dealing and and uh, and support of terrorism. And that sounds a little me. bit like Jane Bond and James Bond kind of thing, you know? What my? Oh no! No, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I sometimes I think I'm more like M. I I quip that I'm not James Bond, but James Bond works for me. <laughs> How about Jane Bond? Maybe. <laughs> well, we you sent us pictures of you with uh, Colombia soldiers trying to track down drug you know drug dealers. Yes, exactly. Well, I was with the Colombian soldiers actually. There were uh, counter terrorist special forces, and I'm smiling in the photograph because they were keeping us safe. We were there in real badlands for quite a stretch of time, and uh, was there to see actually their peacekeeping uh, program, what we call DDR, D- Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration, and talking to some of the fighters that were, were trying to persuade to to rejoin society, to get, um, put down their weapons and rejoin society, and that was a real eye-opener because it was really, you know, you really got to see how uh, warfare and civil conflict, uh, in this case funded by a Marxist uh, guerrilla group funded by drugs and the longest raging war on earth, Um, you know, the devastation it it, it, it brings to communities. Uh, And you would meet villagers who were alternately uh, raped and murdered and pillaged by waves of people, and all of this was funded by drugs. War between who and whom? Uh, The Colombian government, the the, uh, FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which is a Marxist guerrilla group, has been trying to overthrow the 
Colombian government since 1964. Then you had private paramilitary groups were funded by landowners in order to fight them, and they were called the AUC, the um, uh, uh, United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, which is their, in, in their Spanish thing. And then you had the, the government, so you had three sides. Who were you um, traveling along with? We were invited by the Colombian government, who was trying to had, uh, reach the peace deal with the paramilitaries and was trying to reach a peace deal. They still are now. With the uh, with the Marxist guerrilla, we must have had some interesting uh, adventures with them. Very interesting, like. very very interesting. Uh, it, it was very dicey. I mean, we had escorts with Black Hawk helicopters and snipers to keep us safe, uh, and, uh, uh, and but then the most interesting thing was to meet the fighters and to understand why they had joined, what they expected when they joined. Some of them were sold by their parents into it. Some of them were seeking money or some were seeking glory and how things didn't turn out the way they expected because these are people who were seeking to leave. And then to speak with the villagers and part of the reintegration program was that the government wanted them to take in former fighters. And in some cases they knew them. They knew that that was the guy that had murdered their son or the other guy had murdered their husband brutally. I'm getting, I'm getting a little confused. There were three elements here, and who's killing whom? Oh, they're all killing each other, basically. <laughs> they're all killing each other, and the civilians get caught in the middle. And every time a different group, because you'll have the groups fighting across territory, so if first the FARC will come, the Marxists, then the paramilitaries will come to fight them, and they'll take over the town, and then... The, the military, the Colombian government military, will come looking for both of them. And the villagers, every time, suffer great, great hardship. That's and you were there on behalf of whom? The Colombian government. I mean, they, they had hired you to do what? Uh, I was part of a delegation of, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 people who all had been, uh, I, I was probably the only non-government person. I was there actually as a writer, as an analyst, as a journalist. Um, everybody else were either UN peacekeepers or people from Sri Lanka, uh, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone who were there to analyze how is it that you get the longest-running war to stop and people to put down their weapons and live peacefully in society. Now... At this point, have they learned how to do that? No. You're it's laughing. A very, no, it's a very long, arduous, and also very, very expensive process. Is there any way, any way for it to happen? Are we responsible, Americans? Uh, well, in any way? depends who you ask. Uh, you well, know, you've when, written about Hezbollah. And, I've written about Hezbollah. Latin, Latin America. Right. You've written about all of them, actually. Uh, I've written about a lot of uh, yeah some of the bigger some of the bigger terrorist groups uh, Hezbollah and the FARC are, are the ones I know the most about and for for British magazines or British newspapers yes United States and in the U S yeah for think tanks and uh, yeah exactly so you're kind of busy I I am I mean it's certainly uh, the connections between illicit trade which is smuggling like drugs or uh, counterfeit goods or weapons smuggling or even tobacco and alcohol and pharmaceuticals. Uh, we see more and more terrorist groups getting involved in that kind of thing. I mean, everybody knows about the narcotics and that, that their narcotics get traded for weapons. And, and um, But not so many people realize that the terrorists are now getting 
into more and more into illicit trade and other types of illicit trade, and they're colluding with counterfeiters and smugglers and what the state and the Defense Department both call what we call a threat convergence, meaning that to tackle these, you have to use more resources and tackle it from many different angles, law enforcement, education of the public, and military operations, and you need all terrorism. I have to, you know, a terrorist is is just someone or a whole bunch of people that we don't like. They're on the other side, and when you use terrorism, people use terrorism loosely. That becomes a problem. Well, it is. It does become a problem. I don't know how how uh, how much of a fan you are about structuralist critiques. Or I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Go ahead. You can you See, can test me, philosophy. and I'm going to flunk. Absolutely. No, I don't know. There's, you know, people don't know. There's my you philosophy coming back. Michel Foucault said, you know, that words are inscribed on the bodies of the people and that the definition, and you saw this also in the Soviet era, if you want to talk about repression and power, um, you know, they would call people insane and lock them up into insane asylums because they were dissidents. Uh, you see that also even in China today. Um, and so, you know, your ability to call someone a certain name, especially when it carries very real political uh, implications, which means that they can lock you up. Uh, yeah, the meaning of that word is is very important, you know. Who if is the most dangerous terrorist organization in the world right now? <laughs> if anybody knows, you would. I don't know. Dr. Neumann, come on. I don't know. Hezbollah is probably the best organized, but they've become increasingly never the farthest reach. Um, Al-Qaeda has been the most degraded. ISIS, I think, has... Degraded? Degraded. Why? De- uh, degraded because they've become fractured. Their command structure has been quite attacked by effective counter-terrorist uh, strikes, um, and they've been able to block quite a lot of money flows, uh, tracking the money, and, you know, drone strikes, and it's become very fractured. So that has two effects, that as they're not as integrated as an, or an organization as they were uh, when they carried out the September 11th attacks. But on the other hand, it, the fracture means that they, the different cells are harder to infiltrate and they form alliances that are more fleeting with uh, other groups. Um, and so you have to almost relearn the connections with whether they're AQ um, and the Arab Peninsula, AQAP like in Yemen, or AQIM in the Islamic Maghreb, in uh, the Western Sahara. So, if somebody feed you a truth drug, they go out of their minds, you know. What? No. <laughs> You're listening to. I bore to... people. I bore people a lot. They make the mistake of asking me what I do, and 20 minutes later, like, all right. Thanks. You tell him. And by the way, (laughs) you're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper. I'm not being bored on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is Dr. Vanessa Neumann, an intelligent expert on drugs you haven't figured out before, terrorism and illicit trade. How about your life? Your personal life. Oh, don't get too personal. I don't want to get that personal, but it's really interesting. Uh, Just... Explain your great-grandfather, your grandfather. It's terrific. I loved reading about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why I cared about this, and maybe that's why I got got into the business I'm in uh, of counter-illicit trade, Uh, and we bring together governments and industry. And I think it makes sense if you look at my 
background. My family were Czech emigres that settled in Venezuela, my father's family, um, and started a business there that went fairly well for a good amount of time and uh, started from scratch. I mean, moved into a slum area and started working machines and then and, and built it up. But they were refugees uh, uh, basically from World War II and then the Soviets. So my grandfather was a sort of Sudetenland Czech originally. Uh, his family were Jewish. They were not they were not very actively Jewish, but they were certainly actively Jewish enough for the Nazis to cart them away, and they died. His parents died in the camps. The great, your great grandparents then. My great grandparents on your died mother's in the camps. side. Or your father's on my father's side. side. Your on mother father's was Catholic. Side. My mother's Catholic, American, uh, Irish, and Sicilian mixture, and you know, uh, all American girl. I mean, as far as that is sort of all American, in a way. And so then they realized after when my grandfather went into hiding, emerged after the war, thought, this is great. The Russians have liberated us until they realized that the Russians were not going anywhere. And then you had a second wave of emigration and they found their way to to uh, Venezuela. They wanted to come to the U.S. originally, but the but- U.S. said, no, please, no more immigrants, no more refugees. So they found someone who could get them to Venezuela and settled there. And, you know, there's all these stories about the fact that your grandfather was somehow involved in helping V-2 rockets in Germany, but he actually was a no. spy for the Allies in World uh, War no. II. I don't believe those stories. You and don't? And the things with the... No, not at all. Uh, I think he was a... Uh, rumor has it, family rumor has okay, it. Okay, that's that good enough. Let's, let's do family rumor. <laughs> yes, he was uh, certainly for the Allies, uh, but while he was underground during the war. What does that mean? I don't know. You'd have to... Unfortunately, we can't ask him anymore. And people who are lived through the war um, and lived through the horrors of the war, like my grandfather did, are very loath to discuss the details. I did mean, you ask? I did ask. I would ask sometimes, and he would, you know, get up from the dining room table and say, I don't want to talk about the war. Um, and uh, other friends of mine who've had family who've lived through the war... And lived through the bombings. World War Two, we're talking about. World War Two, right? I mean, Prague got bombed badly. I mean, my grandmother used to go out and get the ashes after the bombings to make soap from. I mean, I'm not sure how. There is a way to make soap from ashes. I'm not obviously. I'm being a, a Westerner and not having had that horrifying experience. I'm too spoiled to know how to do that. Uh, but she would do that and. Uh, lived through all the you know the shortages and the rationings, and his he lost his family, his whole entire family, except for his brother. He and his brother made it. So um, it, it's not uncommon that they don't want to discuss it. And when he moved to Venezuela, he very much you know assimilated, tried to to assimilate and just move forward with his life. Venezuela. Yes. Were there other countries in consideration? Apparently Mexico, and I think it boiled down to they found someone who could get them, who could smuggle them out. Speaking of illicit trade, speaking of human trafficking. The illicit Neumanns. Uh, uh, huh? yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, it, you know, why, the movement of people is something that's very interesting. Why do they move? How do they move? Are they sold into it? Are they do it willingly? And they, uh, 
they got out and they I think the question was, yeah, do you want to go to Venezuela or to Mexico? And I think it was, well, which is cheaper? I think they said Venezuela. And so that was it. At the time, yeah. And your grandfather owned the late defunct Caracas Journal? Uh, the the Daily the Journal, the Daily, Daily Journal. Journal, yeah, the Daily Journal. That was my first job as a journalist. I was ah, you had an in. I got an in, yeah, I got an in, and I think I earned the whole hundred and fifty dollars a month, and I was thrilled, and uh, and yeah, worked in the newsroom. What are you writing about? Uh, I, I, it was pretty light. I mean, I'd have to sort of you know translate things that came over the wire. Because it would get the wire stories came in in Spanish and the newspaper was in English, because uh, it serviced the sort of the foreign business uh, community, which in Venezuela, being an oil rich country, before Chavez was a huge foreign business community, right? And um, I uh, and I covered the arts that. beat. I would go and ah. interview artists and that kind of thing. So it was easy. I mean, it was you know nineteen year old stuff. Good gig. Yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed it, you know. And it was interesting because you learned to write tersely, quickly, you know, and turn it around and meet the deadline. And it was it was good. And, you know, I had a I kind of sort of felt important. I'd have a little press pass, you know, <laughs> and I'd turn up and say, I'm here to interview you and take notes. And, you know, it was, it was, it was cool. fun. And your mother, Antonia? My mother, Antonia, yes. And what did she do? Aside from raising you and your brother, <laughs> I think that your was brother, enough. your brother Ricardo, right? Yes, my brother is my half brother. Yeah, my half brother. Um, different mothers, but same father, and uh, we love each other very much. He's still, uh, he's still there. So I don't want to say too much about it because uh, I worry about him. Why? Because Venezuela is a very difficult, uh, dangerous place to be. Uh, it has one of the highest crime rates in the world. Has a very oppressive government. The internet and the, the telephones are under constant surveillance. I mean, they throw people in prison just for tweeting about, you know, complaints about the subway system. Um, what does he no do? Process. Is he, he, is, he in a, is he in a place where this could really affect them, saying the wrong thing on a radio show? Uh, well, being in Venezuela is pretty much a place to worry about being. It's not, you know, it's it's you need to worry about everything when you're in Venezuela, to be honest. What is, I've looked this up and I could not find an answer. Okay. It's Corporación Industrial Montana. You owned a piece of that or owned it? <laughs> you're laughing. Like I read everything I could about I you. I know. My God. It's, you're uh, you're so all you're, over I'm the... Gonna, I'm, you're going to have to write my biography one day. That was my family business, yes. And what it, what did it do? I saw something paint. in Australia and... Uh, paint, paint, basically. Paint? Paint and petrochemicals and packaging. So that's why I have a very much an industry perspective. And, uh, um, and I worked there as well, did corporate finance, did corporate strategy. Everything prepared you for today. Yeah, it did. And, you know, the, the, the sensitivity to uh, government repression, the, uh, uh, the importance of the respect for capitalism, the respect for... Uh, understanding geopolitics from an industry perspective, it's what has led to Asymmetrica today. You know, okay. we're at Asymmetrica, that's what we do. We work uh, with industry in order to help government, and government then helps industry to counter illicit trade. Well, you're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is Dr. Vanessa Neumann, an intelligent expert on drugs and terrorism, illicit trade, and whole bunches of other things. (laughs) 
Do you have time for personal life? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, you know, you've, you've written about it. I mean, about it. I, I just. Was, I got to write the book first. I got to well, write the book long, first. After some, that, maybe. You wrote something in the in the uh, Daily Telegraph in 2004. I love this. The blue of the blood, the shabby of the clothes. Oh yeah, talking about the British aristocracy. I was living in England at the time. Yeah, there, there, there. The Brits. The Brits. The Brits are very interesting. People very, uh, very, on some ways very uh, tradition bound. In some ways, have had a very renegade uh, way of uh, thinking. You know, the relationship with Europe—they're completely different from the continental Europeans. But they have their own, you know, very particular ways and very nuanced code of behavior, which is nearly incomprehensible to most foreigners. It takes time to get to understand them. So. I, I find them very interesting. I have a lot of fondness for them. I lived there for a very long time, and I still have a lot of friends there. And you wrote about something being the cracker from Caracas, which is really bizarre. <laughs> I did not write that. That was Wait, a nickname who, given to me. And no, no, but you wrote about what it's like when, when, when the media decides who you are. Well, I, you know, I was talking about your relationship with sort of a moniker that when somebody uses a term to refer to you a number of times, right? You know, That's... first you think, well, should I be offended? And then you go, you know what? No, why? It is what it is. It's it's funny. It's amusing. And, uh, and well, it had it had to do with the relationship that you had with Mick Jagger for a while. Yeah, which I we won't discuss. Which you don't have to discuss. Nope. But but people should know that all the that the media sometimes. Gives people nicknames, which is, I think, kind of important. No matter, even if they don't know them. That's right. That's what. That's the point of it. Right. right. That's the point of things audiobiographical. You have to deal with it, even though it's maybe yeah, ridiculous. I, well, yeah. And I once had, and I think because you wrote all about it, that's why I brought oh, it yeah. up. No, no, no. And I once, I think, I think the context in which I mentioned it in the yeah. article was somebody didn't recognize my name, but recognized a tabloid nickname, and I thought. At what point does it ha- does that happen? That you know the your sort of like uh, the little caricature moniker is uh, becomes more of a stand-in for I guess in the public eye to well what I got what I enjoyed reading was that you were saying and that somehow the males didn't have to deal with this kind of stuff the female had to give everything up their name their identity. Oh, as well, soon yeah. as you get married that was what made it interesting. Oh yeah, well in general yeah I mean. Uh, that's I what I was that reading. To somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I do find it interesting, uh, especially in uh, well, in Britain, especially if you get written about in some mag. You still have these magazines where they report on who was at the party, you know, and and they refer to the woman as you know Mrs. John Wood. Exactly what I was not even Alison Wood or whatever. <laughs> just just total name completely obliterated, and. Some people think this is maybe a little too renegade of me. I don't, but, I th- you know, I did say to somebody, I said, you know, the absolute expectation is that when you get married, you will automatically take your husband's name. And I said, you know, it's it's a little barbaric, to be honest, you know. Um, I said, well, why? Why? You know, everybody does it. I said, you change your name. I mean, what if you had to wake up the next morning and just be Miss Mr... Mr. Vanessa Neumann. 
I don't think I'd like it very much. No, really, I wouldn't. I want to tell you right now. You know, when you put the shoe in the other on the other foot, it's what we call in philosophy thought experiment. Got if it. It doesn't fly. It's probably not a good idea. Okay, so when you got married, one thing you got married once to once. William Cash, who was a, right. who was a, a British a British person. Yes, and you kept you were. Remained. I Dr. remained. Vanessa I kept my name. Neumann. That's right. What would the Hezbollah say if they saw you now? <laughs> well, I, I don't think. I think uh, Hezbollah long ago decided I don't abide by Sharia law. So I think we're. Well, I think th- we're okay. At least I'm consistent. All the things that I've read about, and all the things you've written in the Standard and the Times, and uh, if I continue to identify all the places you've been, it would take me the rest of the show. Ah, oh, you're so sweet. No, I'm telling you what I had to go through to the interview <laughs> to prepare for you. And uh-huh. I don't think a lot of us understand how these terrorist organizations work and why you selected Hezbollah, which is a Middle East organization. I oh. thought... Oh, do you want to know why I got I found Hezbollah interesting? Yeah. Well, my, I started my career as a, as a Latin Americanist, right, having been born in Venezuela, I had the experience, I had the privilege of being invited to see the peacekeeping process in Colombia. I traveled extensively around Colombia several times. Um, And I also started writing about what was going on in Venezuela, the political changes that were undergoing, that Venezuela was undergoing under Hugo Chavez. And the links to how trafficking from Colombia to Venezuela had grown and flights leaving Venezuela, and uh, the relationship with Hezbollah. Hezbollah has had a has a very cozy relationship with the Venezuelan government. And should um, Americans be worried about that? Yeah, they should. Why? And I've written numerous times that they should. But they because don't... there are training camps in Venezuela. And there's also training camps also... I mean, there is even places in Venezuela where it's not just Hezbollah has been given thousands and thousands of Venezuelan identity cards and Venezuelan identity papers so that if they could enter the United States and you can't tell the Venezuelan from the Lebanese terrorist, uh, but you even have in Venezuela there are so-called factories that build factories that they say they're building tractor parts, another one that they say that they're building uh, bicycles, and another one they say is a dairy processing plant, and they're uh, reinforced. You can see it in satellite images, uh, and they're guarded by people who speak Farsi. I mean, what about they're the here? Quds Force. They're you're Iranian Quds Force. You're the Iranian. Iranians. You have a huge Iranian presence because the Iranians are basically Hezbollah. Really pledges allegiance to Iran. I mean, they always have been. I know they say they're a Lebanese resistance organization, but they're not. They're an Iranian proxy. Their training manuals, you know, they're, they're trained by the Iranians. They have the same emblem as the Quds Force. Their original manuals were written in, in Iran. Um, so the, the links between the Iranians, which I've, is another thing I've written about, the Iranian presence in the Western Hemisphere, and that's been a lot of my work with the Pentagon. I mean, I'm well on record on this and, and, and talking about how having... Is the Pentagon a, worried about this? A sanctuary, yeah, very. Why? Where? Because... How, do they, how, do, how does that manifest itself? Well, you have in to the last, the In the Pentagon. last couple of minutes. Well, I'm, I'm asking the Pentagon. The Pentagon's right here. There's the microphone. Not really. Um, You're a representative of the Pentagon for uh, the moment. Well, I wouldn't say I'm a representative. Well, <laughs> they, yeah. they ask me for my opinion from time to time. Hardly and that was... representative. As we which come is, to the end is, of this, no, really, what is, what is your opinion about Hezbollah as... 
we come to a well it's a major threat because you have human smuggling coming not just through the mexican border you also have it coming coming through the canadian border as well which is less well covered and but is a is a growing concern uh, you have links with them and and uh, drug trafficking groups and the drug trafficking groups also for instance are now into human smuggling los setas you used to have the coyotes would just take you know a few people along in a little truck put them in the back. Los Cetas are so well-armed and have so much money, they just take literally bags of cash, a huge semi-trailer full of people, weapons and drugs, and they travel with big guns right across the U.S.-Mexico border, bribing or shooting whoever they have to bribe or shoot. And that's a major threat to the U.S. We saw that they almost set off, they tried to set off a bomb in Washington, D.C., would have killed American civilians in a quest to kill the Saudi ambassador. And we foiled that plot in Mexico. And that plot came out of Iran. So it's, it's, it's a problem. And you also have, you know, uranium supplies in uh, Venezuela and Ecuador who are receiving a lot of money and have a lot of trade agreements and banking agreements with, uh, with Venezuela and Ecuador, with Iran. And so they're ha- helping Iran b- bust sanctions. And that's not really a secret because if you go on the Treasury Department website, the OFAC, Office of Foreign Asset Control, you'll see that a lot of entities there are designated. Well, I think people are going to have to start paying attention to Asymmetrica. Thank you. <laughs> in order to find out what's going on. I want to thank, thank you, you. for uh, <laughs> gathering all this information about the world's hotspots and sharing your professional and interesting personal life with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joanna Wolper is our senior producer, and Doug Doyle is our executive producer. Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer, and Dana Damiani is our internet associate. If you missed any part of this program, you could hear it all again by Googling Conversations with Alan Walker or get a free subscription on iTunes. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Walker. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Walker has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.